Hello, JM here at Disciple Dojo, and this is our final session of the four-night revival series that I recently preached down at Gordon's Chapel United Methodist Church in Georgia. And this was my favorite session because we looked at my favorite book, the book of Revelation. This is not meant to be an exhaustive account of the book, but rather it was to introduce the book to people who may have either been unfamiliar with it or a little too familiar with it from a certain perspective. So I hope you enjoy this. If you want to go deeper in your knowledge of the book of Revelation, after you watch this video, click right here. And we have an entire course that walks chapter by chapter through the book here at Disciple Dojo called Revelation, A Guided Tour of the Apocalypse. Entirely free for you, your church, your small group, your ministry, for anyone to use. So take a look at that. But first, let's unveil Revelation. I, uh, I teach martial arts, and one of the things I always teach is, look, be aware of your surroundings. And so when people are behind me, I get a little edgy. So I also used to do street preaching when Andy and I were at Georgia, and people would be known to throw things at you every now and then. So i got to keep my head on a swivel. I love teaching the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And the reason I love teaching it is because it is the most misunderstood Bible by far. I mean, it's not even close. There are, there are people who wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except Revelation because they just said, I don't, under, I don't understand it. I don't know what to do with it. You know, John Wesley himself said, beats me. I don't know what's going on here exactly. John Calvin didn't really write a commentary on Revelation despite writing on all the other books of the Bible. So these, these people throughout the ages have wrestled with Revelation and, and there's images in Revelation of these fantastic, um, unimaginable monstrosities, but none of them compare to some of the interpretations that its interpreters have read into the book over the years. I'm not... I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, midlife, so to speak, mid forties. And, and I remember in my lifetime, at least three or four, maybe five different antichrists that people were just assured was the antichrist. You know, remember when Saddam Hussein was the antichrist? Remember when Obama was the antichrist? Remember when George W. Bush was the antichrist? Remember when Ronald Wilson Reagan was the antichrist? Six letters in each name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. People have all of these uh, ideas of revelation. And so revelation becomes a Rorschach test. You know what a Rorschach test is? It's where you take a blot of ink on a paper and smush it together and then open it up. And it's this, it's, it, it has no meaning, but then you show it to somebody and say, what do you see in it? And people see all kinds of things. And, and, and maybe there's, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist. I don't know if there's any value, if you can really I don't know how dependable it is as a test to, to tell about somebody's psyche based on what they see in a ink blot. Or think about when you're out looking at clouds, you know, like, oh, that cloud looks like, you know, and, and, and you look at it and you don't see that at all. You see something completely different. And revelation is that way in the Bible with a lot of people. And so people do one of two things with revelation, both of which are unhealthy. The first thing people do is they ignore it. They say, this book's too weird, it's confusing, it's scary, it's intimidating, I'm just gonna go back to Ephesians where I'm comfortable. Or James, that we've all studied before, Andy and I were joking about that last night. You know, the old tried and true, I'm gonna go the Gospel of John. 
And so they avoid the book of Revelation, which is catastrophic, in my opinion, because Revelation was the one book of the Bible that God wanted his people to read regularly above all others. It even says in it, blesses the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and who keeps it. So there's there's this there's divine unction to read this book and to hear the book. And so when people, when we ignore it, we are, we are severely limiting how God can speak to us. But the other extreme is just as unhealthy. And those are the people who make their entire career about deciphering the book of Revelation and telling you what every symbol and every number and every image in the book is and how it corresponds to every newspaper headline in the world. And it's a whole cottage industry. Book after book after book gets published. Something happens in the Middle East, we got to publish a book. There's blood moons this year, the moon's looking red, we got to publish a book. This is about revelation. And guess what all of those books have in common? They all have to be revised when the predicted things don't happen. And so people become enamored with revelation and they build entire careers out of breaking the code. And, and it becomes an unhealthy obsession to the point where they will even condemn people as not Christians if they don't agree with their view of the end times and how it's going to play out or how we should be politically in the world, you know, which countries we should support or not support or what we should do as a nation or not do as a nation in order to not be blessed by God or cursed by God, etc. And these entire systems of, of thought are built up and the main message of scripture gets overlooked or pushed to the side for the sake of this apocalyptic fervor that people have because we always want to know hidden truths we always want to know secret knowledge you know conspiracy theories are a pretty big thing uh whatever your views on any issue at any issue there's probably a conspiracy theory out there about that issue you know there's probably whether it doesn't matter what it is, pick anything, you know, anything. I won't even pick a controversial topic because anything I name would be controversial to somebody. But there are, you know, flat earth or we never made it to the moon or, you know, the, the plain things or chemtrails and the government seeding biological warfare and, and uh, you know, just conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories. Why? Because why do people get sucked up into those? Because we want to be on the inside. We want the hidden knowledge. We want to be in the know. And all the rest of the sheeple out there, all the rest of the people just blah, blah, going about their day, they don't really know what we know. And so conspiracy theories really can appeal to our pride. And the book of Revelation can appeal to our pride. Any book of the Bible can, but particularly Revelation because of the type of book that it is. And so we want to be careful. We want to guard against both of those extremes. You know, we don't want to have an unhealthy fixation on revelation and become in times, uh, you know, anytime somebody on their book or gets introduced as an end times or prophecy expert, my general rule of thumb is just hold what they're about to tell you with very loose hands because nobody who's truly an end times prophecy expert would ever refer to themselves as that. 
And so that's just kind of a way of being able to kind of sift and, okay, I'm going to listen to you, but I'm not going to sell my house and car based on what you're telling me. Um, we, we want to have an expectation. We saw last night, Jesus is returning. He's going to come back. He's going to come down and, and Christians have different views on how that's going to happen and what it's going to look like. And, and we looked at last night and I poked the bear a little bit with some views on the end times that some people may have grown up with or may hold to, uh, but that are relatively new in the history of the church. And we looked at the passages last night of Jesus's return and how his return is very public. It's very visible. There's no mistaking it. You don't have to wonder if Jesus is coming back. You know, when it happens, it happens. There's no secret disappearances or, or anything like that. It's clear and it's final. And we talked about why that's important and how we should live in light of that because he is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. We all agree on that. All Christians agree on that. But where we start to differ among ourselves is when we say, okay, but, but what, what exactly is that going to look like? And which passages in Scripture, which parts of Scripture tell us about it? And how should we read those parts of Scripture that tell us about it? And that's where Christians in good faith can start to disagree. And that's fine. That's to be encouraged. I, I really, I participate in and I appreciate good, rigorous debate among Christians. You know, some of my best friends are Calvinists. And I'm not. I'm Methodist. I'm, I'm, my view is Wesleyan. I do not believe in their version of predestination. And we will argue it and we will debate it, but we will do it over dinner. Or we'll do it with smiles on our faces. You know, we'll, we'll do it because why? It's an in-house debate. And it's the same thing with revelation and end-time stuff or creation and, and science evolution stuff. You know, we, we debate these things. We, we, we want to have some give and take. We want to be challenged, but we're not going to cut each other off if we disagree over it. Now, if we disagree over whether Jesus is the son of God, yes, that will be something we break fellowship over. If someone says, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, you are not a Christian in my eyes. I cannot extend the right hand of fellowship. I can be your friend, but I can't be your brother in Christ because you're not in Christ because Jesus is raised from the dead. And if you deny that, you're denying the whole thing. So there are some things that are non-negotiable. We have to draw boundaries around those things. But interpretations of parts of the Bible that Christians have historically debated for centuries are not those things. And so we want to have what John Wesley talked about is, is, is in all things charity. And, and to hold fast to the essentials and have unity in the essentials. But to re realize that we can disagree. And... So that's when we, when we talk about Revelation and, and just thinking about the book tonight, that's the main thing that I want to emphasize because it's a book where Christians are going to disagree because the nature of what it is. So let me, I just want to talk a little bit about what it is. I want to look at two passages in particular in it that kind of encapsulate some important things. And then that will be it tonight. Well, Revelation, first of all, it was a letter. It was a book that was written and it was written to seven churches. It were seven churches in what is today Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor and Revelation was written to these seven churches and they're kind of shaped like a seven if you turn it on its side. So that's always remember. But Revelation was written by this guy named John and John was exiled on this little island in the middle of the ocean called Patmos and it was a penal colony. And so from Patmos, he's looking across the ocean and he's, he's the church. That's the mainland. That's where the Christians are. And the church is in Asia Minor. Well, 
the more we so so take let's forget revelation let's take a letter like corinthians would we all agree that the more we know about the conditions in corinth the better we can understand paul's letter to the corinthians does that make sense if the if we want to know about the letter to the ephesians then it helps us if we know what was happening in ephesus because that's what paul's writing them to talk about Knowing the background of a book helps us understand what's being taught in the book. Well, it's the same thing with Revelation. See, people run to Revelation with newspaper headlines from today. And that's the exact wrong approach to start with. What we want to start with is, what were these Christians experiencing? Because Jesus gives a message to these Christians, and then in that message to these Christians, his eternal word is communicated to us once we understand what he was saying to them, just like we do with any of the other letters in the Bible. When we understand what was going on at Philippi and what Paul was talking about to the Philippians, then we can understand the message that that scripture inspired by God, which we talked about Sunday night, has to say to me today. Because this may be a newsflash to some of us. So I'm, I'm just hold your rotten tomatoes before you throw them at me. Hear me out. Not one word in scripture was written to you. Not one word in scripture was written to me. Okay. They were written to an original audience, but every word in scripture was written for you. And every word in scripture was written for me. Right? Moses was writing to the Israelites, but in Moses' writing to the Israelites, we today hear the voice of God. That's how scripture inspiration works. So it's the same thing with Revelation. John is writing to the Christians in Asia Minor. And if we understand what he was writing to them and how it addresses their situation, then we can hear the message that the Spirit says to the churches in every situation. And that is where the power in the book of Revelation comes. Not from lining it up with headlines or newspaper events, but from hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to his body through the centuries, beginning with what he said to his churches at this time. And so Revelation was written to these Christians in Asia Minor. Now, Christians in Asia Minor, here's the thing. Asia Minor, this part of the world, modern-day Turkey, was the epicenter of the imperial cult. What does the imperial cult mean? Well, this is the time during the Roman Empire. So Rome was ruled by Caesar. Now, Caesar's, and Caesar is just a title. He's not a guy. Caesar, it's like we would say president. So Caesar, Caesar Augustus, or, you know, the different Caesar, Caesar Nero. Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire. Most of the Caesars, with a few exceptions, would not come out and say, Rome, citizens, you must bow down and worship me. They were pretty smart. They knew that that probably wouldn't fly with most people in an empire. But they would put on displays, they would exercise their might, they would rule, and they would do everything they could to be considered benevolent 
rulers on behalf of the gods, the Roman or the Greek gods. Well, in Asia Minor, in this part of the world, there arose this popular level movement to curry favor from Rome so that Rome would look at Asia Minor area and say, those are the good citizens. Those are the real citizens. This is where we're honored. They wanted to get in good with the Roman Empire, of which they were a part. And part of doing that was showing your appreciation for the emperor. And that became more than just showing appreciation. It became actual worship of the emperor as a manifestation of the gods. And so it was this uniquely this groundswell movement of citizens throughout Asia Minor that if you wanted to be a good Roman citizen, then you would honor the emperor as, ready, Lord and Savior. Kyrios and Soter, Lord and Savior. And you would talk about, you would consider, you would offer incense on the altars in pagan temples to your Lord and Savior. And by doing that, you helped your city, your town, your province keep in the good graces of Rome. And gradually that became how you showed your patriotism, your allegiance, and how you showed your faith as a good Roman citizen. Now, there was one group of people who were exempt from having to do this. Can you guess which group of people it was? They were a group of people who empire after empire had tried to get to become pagan and had failed every single time. One stubborn group of people would just never bow the knee. Those people were the Jews. And so the Romans were pretty pragmatic. They understood, okay, after this whole destruction of Jerusalem thing, these people are never going to honor our gods. They're certainly never going to pray or pay homage to Caesar. So we're going to make an exception. So if you were Jewish, you didn't have to pray to the emperor. You didn't have to offer a sacrifice to the emperor in a pagan temple. You didn't have to participate in the marketplace cultural worship. There was no sacred and secular back in the time. It was all part of the gods. It was religion and politics were all intertwined. So if you were Jewish, you had an exemption. And the, the compromise was Jews just had to have their priest pray for Caesar. And that was considered good enough. That was the compromise. So if you were Jewish, you didn't have to participate in the pagan life of Asia Minor. Just when you go to synagogue, make sure that you pray uh, to God for favor for Caesar. Well, that's fine. And these early Jews who started following this crucified Messiah, Jesus, no problem. Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But as Gentiles started coming to faith, remember last night how the, or the night before how the gospel was always intended to go out to the world? So as these Gentiles started coming to faith in this Jewish Messiah, all of a sudden now you have Gentiles, Roman citizens in Asia Minor, who are not wanting to participate in the pagan emperor worship cult. 
but they're not Jews. And this became a source of tension. And there was pressure on those followers of Jesus that they had to be good uh, Roman citizens, but they also were worshiping the Messiah of Israel, which means they could not worship Caesar. You see the dilemma? They had to choose. And so this was the general sense of what was going on. And, and in some of the cities, it wasn't as big of a deal. In some of the cities, the churches, they, they did, there were one of two things they could do. They could either, they could either assimilate and say, find reasons for participating in the emperor cult and paying, worshiping to Caesar, burning the incense on the altar at the pagan temples, eating the food sacrificed to idols that had been part of, of a pagan service that they knew about. And, and they, they could go along to get along and keep their Jesus following private, or they could be vocal in their witness to Jesus as the true Lord and Savior, not Caesar, and face the consequences. And so that's the situation. And it came to a head, it gradually arose until under emperors like Nero, they actually used Christians as the scapegoat when bad things happened and said, well, the reason the bad things happened empire is because you have all these they called christians at the time atheists because they didn't believe in the roman gods and they didn't pay homage to caesar so all these atheists that refuse to participate in our rituals they're the reasons why the gods are angry with us and why there are earthquakes and famines and wars and things like that so christians became convenient scapegoats this was what they were facing and so under nero there was a little mild mini, not mild, but a miniature outbreak of persecution of Christians. Nero was crazy. He would throw parties in his palace backyard and for light for those parties, he would string up Christians, coat them in tar and light them on fire alive. Those were his back. Christians were his backyard torches for his barbecue. That's the kind of insane demonic persecution that Christians faced in that one instance. Well, a couple of emperors after Nero, another one came on the scene who was like Nero 2.0, a guy named Domitian. And the persecution spread even more under Domitian. And he started, it's like, you know, we say today that somebody's a new Hitler or a new Stalin. And what we mean by that is they're a, a, a bad dictator. Well, back in that time, it would be, well, this person's a new Nero a crazy megalomaniac, you know, anti-Christian persecuting. So this is what the time that these Christians were living, this is when Revelation was written, after the Nero persecutions, but before the much worse persecutions that were to come. And so Revelation was written to these Christians to communicate one message. And this is the summary, the whole book of Revelation. You could summarize it with this one sentence. Maintain your faithful witness despite persecution or temptation, and you will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the message of Revelation. Revelation was written to these people in Asia Minor, and the main message was maintain your faithful witness. And that term faithful witness recurs throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus is considered the faithful witness. Revelation is the witness of John to what 
Jesus is doing and what's going on in the world. And, and the people who are put to death are the witnesses. And in English, it did a funny thing. The word witness in Greek was martyreo. That just, it just meant to give testimony in court. You know, you go to the courthouse, they call a witness. That is a, that person gives a testimony. They, the martyreo is the verb. Well, eventually that became known giving testimony in the Christian sense usually resulted in you getting killed. So martyreo is where we get the word martyr from because giving witness to your faith usually meant you got the death sentence at some point in time. So this is how this developed. These are who Jesus was writing to. These are or Jesus was speaking to and John was writing to people facing this situation because for them, it wasn't a case of, well, if I'm open with my faith, the person at work may look at me funny or the kids at school may say bad things about me or I may not get a promotion at work. Okay. I mean, those, it's not like those aren't painful things. But for the Christians that Revelation is written to, it was, if people know I'm a Christian, I could be killed. My family could be sold into slavery. All of my property could be confiscated. I could be shut out of the trade guild that I rely on to feed my family. I could be branded a terrorist, atheist, seditious enemy of the state. That's the kind of thing they were facing. And so... Revelation, the Christians that were being written to, they were facing persecution and Revelation was written to say, listen, maintain your faithful witness. I know the persecution looks bad and it's going to get worse, but be assured that Jesus is on the throne and that none of this is taking God by surprise and that all of this is with the aim of expanding the kingdom of heaven on earth as painful as it is for you. So maintain your faithful witness. It was getting them to see the world as it truly is. It was also written to Christians who were tempted to compromise and say, well, if I just blend in, if I just, you know, cross my fingers behind my back and offer my incense to Caesar and participate in the pagan worship and all of that, God doesn't really care. It's no big deal. And Revelation was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This is what you are doing when you do that. You are denying the one who bought you with his blood. You are, you are cooperating with the forces of evil. You are being anti-Christian, anti-Christ. So Revelation is written. That's the message, and it and it's communicates it to the people. But the problem is it communicates it in a very weird way. It communicates it not as a sermon. It communicates it as an apocalyptic vision. And that's what Revelation is. Revelation is an apocalypse. The first word in the book of Revelation is apocalypsis. The apocalypse of Jesus that he gave to John to show him what must soon take place. So, so what does that mean, that Revelation's apocalyptic? Well, I'm going to use an analogy that I used the first night. How many of you remember the Wizard of Oz? You remember the scene in the Wizard of Oz when they finally get back to Oz and Toto runs up. And what does Toto do? Do you remember? He pulls back the curtain. And lo and behold, instead of this terrifying, fiery wizard, there's this little old man turning levers and shouting into a microphone. Toto reveals Oz. 
That is exactly what apocalypsis means. That is exactly what an apocalypse is. Apocalypsis in the Greek means to lift the veil. So every time, when you guys have communion or the elements covered, every time you come up for communion and the elements are covered and it takes the cover off, that is an apocalypsis. He's revealing what's underneath it. You go to a car show. There's a car on a spinning platform, but it's got the, the sheet draped over it, right? And then the spokes model comes up, and the person introducing the new Nissan, blah, 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 blah. And they, what do they do? They lift the curtain off of the car, and finally you can see this machine that's going to change your life, right? Think of The Price is Right. The showcase show. I know some of you watch The Price is Right. When they show the showcase showdown, what do they do? The curtain lifts up and it's a new car and everybody goes crazy. That is an apocalypsis, lifting the veil. That's what it is. So revelation was intended, this is the irony, revelation was intended to make things clearer for its first readers. It was intended to reveal what, was going on in the world and in particular their world and it was doing it through this type of writing called apocalypse now apocalypse there are other apocalypses and we won't go into it this i, I teach a course it's called revelation a guided tour of the apocalypse and it's it's on my the website you can do it as a sunday school class or small group we go session by session we walk chapter by chapter through the book and it's a guided tour you know on a tour what does the guide do they don't tell you every detail they just point out important stuff and it's up to you to kind of follow along and read along and understand and that's what we do in that course we, could, we would spend the whole session talking about what is apocalyptic, and we would look at examples of other apocalyptic writings, because there were lots of them from the time of Jesus, from the years before Jesus, going all the way back to books in the Old Testament like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. Those are apocalyptic books. And then all the way to the centuries after Jesus, there are apocalyptic books. So we know that apocalyptic was a type of writing. It was a way you communicated if you wanted to speak to a people who were under persecution and who were facing circumstances that seemed overwhelming. Apocalypsis was the types of writing that was aimed at those type of situations. And apocalypsis doesn't follow regular writing conventions. In Revelation, for instance, the, the book is, it, part of it, the reason it's so confusing is because of how much recapitulation is in it. It goes in these cycles where it begins, the opening begins on earth, and then John is taken up into the throne of God, the heavenly realm, and he's shown these seven... Or, Jesus speaks to the seven churches, and that's then talked about what's going to happen to those churches on the earth. And then again, he's taken back up, and then there's a cycle of seven seals. And then there's another cycle after that of seven trumpets. And then there's this mini, uh, um, this story in the middle of the book, chapter 12, about the, the unholy trinity. And, and there's this, the woman and the dragon and the beast, and, and there's two beasts, and there's a dragon, and there's, it's just this, 
it's this whole thing and we're like what is going on and then we're back down on the earth of what's happening then we're back up in heaven in the throne room and the ark is revealed and all of this, you know judgment come again and 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 it just recapitulates god pours out his bowls and then there's final judgment and then there's new creation i mean it's this whirlwind it's like a symphony it's if you're a symphony fan you know a symphony will play a note in the beginning or a tune in the beginning and then there will be variations on that tune and then it'll circle back to that tune but maybe play it in a different key or with a different variation and then it'll do something else and then it'll circle back to that tune and put it's like it's this it's you can't listen to a symphony the way you would listen to a pop song there are movements there's direction there's it's it's meant to engage your imagination and your heart and your your whole being not just your brain not just your academic understanding revelation does that and that's what apocalypses would do apocalypses where people were taken up into the heavens and they were given they were shown hey this is what the world really is i know you think it's this but really it's this so for example on earth rome is would consider rome would portray itself through the image of the goddess roma or the figure roma i don't know some people she was divine for some she was you know how america okay we have uncle sam right uncle sam guy with the gray hair and the big hat and the stars and stripes we well, there's no act i mean there might have been an uncle sam but at this point in our time uncle sam's not a real person what is uncle sam he's the embodiment of america so if you see somebody saying something about Uncle Sam, you know they're talking about America as an idealized person. Well, Rome had its own version of Uncle Sam. It was Roma. Roma was noble. Roma was regal. Roma was beautiful. Roma was the spirit of everything that you aspired to. She was intelligent. She was benevolent. She brought peace. She brought light. She fed the masses. Roma was everything that all the pagan nations aspired to be in the earthly sense. So what does Revelation do? Well, in good old apocalyptic fashion, John takes that image of Rome and turns it entirely on its head. So when John portrays the Roman Empire, it's not a noble, regal, semi-goddess. It's a drunken prostitute riding on a beast, gorging herself on the blood of God's people. The, the, the exact opposite of a noble, regal woman is a drunken prostitute cannibal. Can we all admit that? <laughs> you can't get more opposite than those two images. So in Reve Revelation is saying is, look, from heaven's perspective, that is what Rome is. That is what you're up against. That is what you're facing. And that is what you have to stand strong in the face of. Another example. In the eyes of Rome, in the eyes of the world, Jesus was some backwood Galilean peasant would-be Messiah who was hung up on a stake and done away with as a usurper to the throne at best. He was, he was a nobody in the eyes of Rome. From heaven's perspective, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we meet Jesus and he's the Lamb of God who was slain. And because of that, 
he receives all glory and honor and wisdom and power and praise. And every nation, every tribe, nation, people, language bow down to him and worship this lamb who was slain. And he's not a normal lamb. He has seven eyes, which is an eye was a symbol of, of knowledge and, and a vision. And so him having seven eyes means he has complete knowledge because he is omniscient. And he has seven horns because a horn was a symbol in the Bible of strength. And so this lamb, this slaughtered lamb, is also all-seeing and almighty. And he is called the conqueror in Revelation. But not by conquering with the sword, but by conquering through his own life and shedding his own blood. Revelation takes everything that the world thinks is powerful, everything that the world thinks is noble, everything that the world thinks is amazing, and it turns it on its head. It says, let me show you what it's really like. There was a movie that came out about 20 years ago, 21 years ago. I saw it when I was a student here in Athens. The movie was called The Matrix. And in the movie, The Matrix, there's a character named Neo, the normal guy, and he's just walking around living life. He's a computer programmer, hacker, whatever. Life is normal. And then he meets a guy named Morpheus, who is this apocalyptic guide figure. And Morpheus hands him, he holds out his hand, he says, I'll give you a choice. I have two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. If you take the blue pill, you'll wake up tomorrow, you won't really remember any of this, and you'll go on about your day. But if you take the red pill... You're going to see things as they truly are. Now, of course, it'd be a terrible movie if he took the blue pill. So he takes the red pill. And all of a sudden, this guy who just was a normal everyday life, living life, working at a boring job, getting yelled at by his boss, coming home, going to bars, normal life. He wakes up in this tub, in this pod, and he looks around. And he's got all these wires and stuff coming out of him. And he sees he looks around and he sees that all of humanity are actually enslaved, kept in these pods, stimulated with brain, wires in their brains to make them think that they're living a normal life, but they're actually human batteries for a race of machines that have controlled and taken over the world. It's wild. That is what Revelation is trying to do for Christians in Asia Minor. It is trying to be the red pill. And I, I teach when I teach a condensed course on this, instead of the full Revelation of Guide Tour of the Apocalypse, I do a, like a mini version of an afternoon session, and we call it Revelation, the Bible's red pill. Because Revelation is meant to say, Christians, wake up. This is what you think the world is like. This is what the world is telling you it's like. This is what it's like in God's eyes. This is what it's actually like. It's pulling back the curtain. And it does it in a number of ways. It does it through this recapitulation and these cycles. It does it through things like Gematria. So Gematria is, again, we won't go into all of this, but basically Gematria was in the ancient world, you could have a number that went with your name. Like we all have social security numbers. This would be similar to that. Um, not entirely because a lot of people had the same number, but every letter of the alphabet, every number corresponded to a letter. So A is one, B is two, C is three, and then it got up to tens and then fifties and hundreds. So taking the Greek alphabet, you, your name had a number. And if you said, like there's graffiti, there's actually, I don't have the, on this slide, but I have a slide, there's actual Greek graffiti that says the woman, who, the, I love the woman whose number is 258 or whatever. It's just some random graffiti. And, and it was a way of 
number, there was names that went with numbers and, and it was something that the ancient world would practice and people got into it and, and they would like, there were the ways of trying to decipher. If you have a number, how do you work out the name? You'd have to know clues in order to get the name. Cause a lot of different names can lead to the same number because you're just adding them up. So it's a whole thing, but interestingly enough, pretty well known that when you spelled out Neron Kaisar, which was the Hebrew way of saying Nero Caesar, it added up Gemetria to 666. And if you spelled it out in the Greek version, Nero Caesar, it added up to 616. And there are actual New Testament variant manuscripts, copies of the New Testament, where the number of the beast is written as 616. So we know that that is what John in Revelation was talking about, the, the number, this is the beast. Nero is the beast. And, and the word Therio, beast itself, spells out 666 as well. So it was like he was the perfect image of this beastly figure in Revelation who was persecuting God's people, who was demanding to be worshipped, conquered all in his path. He became the archetype for everything that opposed itself against God in an unholy way. So we don't, we don't have to figure out which president today is the beast by doing these complicated math or, or you know, what is the, the six, six, is this a barcode that's going to get stamped on my neck or, or are we going to get tattoos or are they going to put credit card chips and is that the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast was allegiance to Nero, allegiance to Rome. If you took the mark of the beast in Revelation, there's another mark that God's people are given, it's the seal of the lamb. And the people who were following the lamb in Revelation are given a seal on their foreheads. Well, there, it wasn't a literal seal. Christians didn't literally have something on their forehead. But it was Revelation's way of saying allegiance to the lamb, Jesus. So the counterpart in Revelation to allegiance to the lamb is allegiance to the beast. And so it's taken on the head and on the hand, what we think, what we do. And, and, and so we're, that's what Revelation uses to give this message to people. And, and that confuses us because we're not always familiar with these concepts. And so when we aren't, we end up reading into it all kinds of crazy stuff that it was never intending to teach. I'll give one example. How many of you heard the phrase lukewarm Christians? You don't want to be a lukewarm Christian, right? Because you got on fire for Jesus. That's a good thing, right? And then you have cold and dead. That's a bad thing. Well, even worse than both of those is being lukewarm. You kind of follow Jesus, but then you do your own thing the rest of the week. But then you come back to church on Sunday and you're hooping and hollering and praising. But then you go back to the bars on, you know, it's like, that's what people think lukewarm means. And it comes from Revelation 3.15, where Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. And he says, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, some translations say spit you out of my mouth, but that's a weak translation. It is vomit. It's the word for throw up. And this is Jesus talking. So preachers preach on this and they're like, so you don't want to be lukewarm. God would rather you hate him and be dead to the Holy Spirit completely than to be lukewarm, iffy, kind of in or kind of out. So which are you today, right? And that's how it gets preached. Now, whether that's right or wrong, you know, whether God would rather you be a, a, a headlong into hell sinner or a hypocritical Sunday Christian, 
you can argue that from other passages, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage was written to Laodicea. And the, in the passage, the church at Laodicea, Jesus is writing to them. And Laodicea, that box up there is a zoomed-in version of well, where you can see Laodicea. Laodicea was an actual town, and it was known for some things throughout Asia Minor. Laodicea was known because it was on a crossroads in the Lycus Valley where, where, you know, trade would happen near the coast, but not right on the coast, and near the mountains, but not right in. So it was, it was a hub. It was, it was like commerce up the road, right? There's a town called Commerce right up the road from here. And what's it known for? Commerce, right? You go to the outlets there and you buy stuff and, and, and a lot of people come through and there's money. And well, that's what Laodicea was. So Laodicea was so successful. They had, so, they had a lot of gold. The city, I'm talking about the city. The city had gold. There was an earthquake before the time of Jesus that destroyed much of this region. And the empire sent word and said, do you need aid to rebuild? And all of the cities and towns, and yes, we'll take imperial aid. We need to rebuild. Guess which one said, no, we're good. Laodicea. They actually told Rome, we don't need anything. We're good. We've got our own wealth. And they had it. And they rebuilt their own city. They were known for being self-sufficiently wealthy. Laodicea had developed, one of its industries was a, a textile industry, a garment industry. There was a certain type of snail that if you ground up the, the snail, it would produce this very deep indigo purple dye. And so, which in the ancient world, you know, that's a big deal. We don't, they didn't have synthetic dyes. They didn't have, you know, Pez food color or Paz food coloring or whatever the stuff we have. You know, it was a big deal to get colorful robes. And Laodicea was known for their luxurious, colorful garments and their trade industry. Kind of like we would say Paris or Milan or, or you know, Fifth Avenue or something like a, a fashion center. They were also known, medical doctors at Laodicea had invented a type of ointment you could put on your eyes that would help with various eye conditions. Now, it wouldn't heal you if you were flat out blind, but it would help with certain eye conditions that were known in the ancient world. This was a known thing throughout. So the Laodicea, the church in Laodicea, the Christians who lived in Laodicea, this was what their town was known for. And there was one thing their town was known for, though, that wasn't good. And they didn't, it was that they didn't have their own water supply. There wasn't a river that ran through Laodicea. There wasn't a stream, a spring, a hot spring or a cold spring. Or they, they, they didn't have their own water. But you know, when you're rich, you don't worry about little things like water. You just, what do you do? You have those peasants bring it to you. That's what Laodicea did. They built aqueducts. And so right across the valley from Laodicea is this little town called Colossae. It's where the letter to the Colossians was from. And you can see Colossae in the background. And it's at the base of Mount Cadmus. And Mount Cadmus was a snow-capped mountain. So it always had fresh runoff all year round, cold water. That's why that valley is so green and fertile. And right across in the other direction was this place called Hierapolis. You can go there today. It's a resort. And there's an entire mountainside of these pools. These are hot springs. And the, and the sediment seeps over. And it forms these basically a whole mountainside of hot tubs with this mineral-rich water that was healing and soothing. You can book a vacation and go there today and sit in these pools. So Laodiceans got their hot water from Hierapolis, and they got their cold water from Colossae. But this is before refrigeration, right? 
So by the time hot water got from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. And by the time cold water got from Colossae to Laodicea, it wasn't cold anymore. And it had picked up all the residue and all the stuff along the way in those stone aqueducts, which are basically elevated ditches. And so the water at Laodicea, it wasn't pure. It wasn't good for drinking. It wasn't good for cooking. It wasn't good for soothing or healing. It wasn't really good for anything. And if you weren't used to it, kind of like today, if you go to Mexico or somewhere where they have different uh, stuff in the water and, you're, and our bodies aren't used to it, what happens? You get sick. I made the mistake one time in Honduras of, of I, I drank bottled water the whole time. I was on a missions trip. The last night we were there at the presidential steakhouse, so a high, nice, you know, took us to a nice dinner. I didn't take the ice cubes out of my drink. And I got sick on the plane ride home. I won't tell you that story because it's gross. But the point is, it made me sick. Well, now look at what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. And it starts to make a lot more sense. To the angel of church at Laodicea, write, This is what the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Hot or cold are both good things. Cold doesn't mean spiritually dead. Cold's a good thing. It's, if you have, you're working out in the field all day, what do you want? You want something cold. Cold drink of water is a lifesaver. So cold is good. Hot is good. You have a hard workout. You want to go sit in a hot tub or a hot shower. Oh, it feels amazing. Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. Thus, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you are saying, now listen to what Jesus is charging the church at Laodicea with saying. Because you are saying, I am rich. I've become rich. I have need of nothing. You don't know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's telling them, you're the exact opposite of your city. You're none of these things. I advise you, buy gold from me refined by the fire in order that you may become rich and white clothing in order that you may be clothed and sh clothe the shame of your naked may not be revealed. And I salve to smear on your eyes in order that you may see. And as, as I love, I reprove in discipline. So he's telling him, you think you're, he's talking to the church. This is not to the city. This is to Christians. First Laodicea United Methodist, okay? And he's writing and he's saying, you think you're like your city? You're nothing like your city. You're poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, naked. The only way you are like your city is you're like it's water and you make me sick. I mean, talk about a fire. And, and this is Jesus speaking. These are in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. This is Jesus speaking. So after that big of a smackdown, he has to come along and say, listen, the ones I love, I rebuke. I mean, the fact that he's telling them this is but proof that he loves them and he wants them to change. And he says, be zealous, therefore repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, indeed, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This isn't an evangelistic verse. This wasn't written to non-believers. Jesus doesn't, I mean, whether or not you want to think of Jesus as knocking on the door of a sinner's heart, maybe you might could get that from other passages where it talks about may Christ dwell in your hearts and uh, maybe, maybe, but this verse is not about unbelievers. This verse is about believers. Jesus is saying this to a church. 
church. And you want to talk about revival? This is revival. It's a dead church. It's a church that's like its city's water supply and thinks that it's doing great. And Jesus has to come along just like Revelation does and turn everything upside down and say, no, 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 from heaven's perspective, you're nothing like your, water, your, church, your city. You're only like it in the sense of your water supply. But I want you to let me in. I want you to let me in. So Jesus is knocking on the door, not of the sinner's heart in a generic sense, but of the church. It'd be like Jesus standing on the front porch here knocking and you guys saying, now nah, we're good. Stay out there. We're going to keep singing and praising and doing stuff in here. And the whole time Jesus is knocking and knocking. Let me in. I just want to have fellowship with you. That's what the message of Revelation is to the church at Laodicea. And there's just, that's one example. So yeah, being, being cold isn't bad. It's good. Cold is refreshing, invigorating. Being lukewarm is useless. Jesus doesn't want us to be lukewarm because you lukewarm is useless. It's sickening. It's nauseating. What he wants us to be either hot or cold. Why? Because both of those are useful. Both of those are good that they can do for people in need. Hot is good. Cold is good. What's not good is lukewarm. And that's what the Laodicean church was. So, why? We'll, we'll, we'll finish with this image. I'll show this. If I were to ask you, tell me what's going on in this cartoon. I bet a million dollars that I don't have and never will, that none of you in here could tell me what's going on in this picture. And I'm not saying that because I think you're not smart. I think you're very intelligent. But I still think none of you can guess what's going on in this picture. And there's a few reasons why. I, this is a newspaper I picked up when I was in India my second trip. I was in India teaching pastors, village pastors, for a week. I was teaching Revelation. I was so excited because it was the most relevant book to what those pastors were reading. Because this was only a few years after the major outbreak of anti-Christian persecution in Kandamal region of India. And we were going to that in that area where those Christians have been persecuted. So the pastors I was speaking with and meeting on that trip had had their churches burned down. They had had family members killed in front of them. They had had to flee and hide in the jungle where they literally have tigers and things that are very scary. And, and they, I mean, they had lived this stuff. And, and so these were people I was talking to and meeting, and, and I was so excited to preach on Revelation because of all the books in the Bible, theirs was the situation that was the most like Asia Minor. If they did not participate in the Hindu festivals, they were seen as bad neighbors. If they did not pray to the Hindu gods, they were seen as bringing about the downfall of their village. They were scapegoated for, for whatever people wanted to scapegoat them for. So these were Christians facing very revelation-like circumstances. And, and I was so excited to preach. And I opened the newspaper, and this was the political cartoon that I saw. And I knew that this was a jackpot. I had no idea what the cartoon was saying, but I was like, I need this cartoon. So I showed it to our, our liaison, and I said, PR, explain this to me. What's going on in this cartoon? I don't read Oria. That's all the squiggly, bubbly lines. That's their language, Oria. I don't read Oria. So I said, what's going on here? And he looked at it for a minute. And he read it and he said, oh, okay, yeah. So here's what's going on. In the picture, there is this old man and he's holding the tail of this monkey figure over a fire. 
So this monkey, and he has a really long tail. You can see it coiled around. And this figure has lit the tail of this monkey on fire. And he's kind of like standing there being, and the monkey's saying something. That's all I knew. Now I could take this, I could read into all kinds of things into this that aren't there. But I would be just doing that. I'd be making stuff up. So I asked him, and he said, oh, this is very easy. Let me explain it to you. The little old man is a caricature of the Prime Minister Modi. If you look at his face, and now that I know what Modi looks like, that's, that's a pretty good Modi political cartoon. And he said, there's a, there's a folk tale. There's an Indian folk tale about this, this figure, Raban, I think is his name. I may get some of these names wrong. But he is this, this scheming, conniving figure. And there's this monkey king. This, this king who's also a monkey, because in Hinduism, the animals and humans are kind of all interrelated. So it was a monkey king. And the evil guy, Raban, was always trying to persecute the monkey king. And every time he'd try to grab him by the tail to you know, take him, the, the, the monkey could grow his tail longer so that he could get far enough away. And it would always thwart his plans. I didn't know the whole ins and outs of the story, but it's kind of like our folk tales. You know, Jack and the Beanstalk or something like, you know, just like a, a folk tale mythology. And so the, the little guy, Raban, is Modi, the prime minister, and the fire has a label on it, and it says fuel rate increase. And the monkey has a label on his back, and it says voters. And the monkey's saying this is just like Raban or something like that. These aren't exact translations. But once he explained that to me, I said, oh, this makes sense now. Prime Minister Modi... Raising the rates of fuel is, is doing to the voters what Raban was doing to the monkey king. It, it's persecuting them. It's, it's, it's burning his tail. It's, it's hurting the voters. So it used a story that I was unfamiliar with in a language that I can't read using political figures that I didn't know. No wonder I couldn't make sense of it. But once he explained to me, here are the political figures involved. Here is the situation that it's talking about. And here are the, is the cultural background of this. Then I can make sense of the cartoon. That's what Revelation is like. Revelation uses these images of dragons and beasts and the woman with her head in the stars and, and this lamb that's slaughtered, but he's got seven eyes and seven horns and these, these larger-than-life images and figures. And we can't even think about not so that we can decode it and try to figure out what each thing represents in the world today, but because it's doing what this is doing. It's saying this is how the world presents itself, but this is how the world is through Jesus' eyes. Which are you going to stand on the side of? That's the message of Revelation. I wish we had time to get into the book itself. I wish we had time to explore it, but we don't. We're over time now. Um, there's a whole course on it. It's on my ministry website. It's free to take. You download the workbook. That's free too. We give away all of our resources and just pray that God sends people to fund the ministry so we can keep doing it. But but I, I'm telling you, Revel I'll come back here and teach on a month for Revelation. Revelation will blow your socks off when you start reading it, not through the lens of, of, of the left behinds or the Jack Van Empey's or John Hagee's or the Armageddon and the war in the Middle East and oil and blood and all that kind of stuff. Not when, when you get away from all that, all the sensationalism, and you just dig into what is this apocalyptic ancient book saying to the people then 
and then how do I hear the message that it's saying to Christians today? That's when it, it unveils. It really does lift the veil. And we start to see things in our own life. We start to see our own life, the things you're doing. You may not see any significance. You may think, I'm a retired school teacher. I was a farmer for 50 years. Uh, I work in a plumber office or I teach piano lessons. You know, you may have a job that the world will tell you is utterly insignificant. Revelation is, encourages you to look through heaven's eyes and say, listen, whatever your job is, at every time you interact with another human being, you are staring into the face of the image of God and you have a chance to advance the kingdom of God or to retreat and pull back. And it doesn't mean you witness to them and say the sinner's prayer with them right there on the spot. Although if you want to do that, go for it. But it's not necessarily that. But it's how are you treating this person? How are you loving this person? Are you reflecting me in this person's life? In everything, not just in our interpersonal relationships, but in everything. How are you as citizens? How are you as family members? How are you as church officials? How are you? It, what Revelation does is it makes you re-examine your life down to the little mundane details. And all of a sudden, those things matter. Bottom of all, everything, scripture is, is endless in terms of treasure. Remember the image that we started off with. This is what the links that people are willing to go to in this world today, just to have a piece, just a page of the Bible. They're willing to risk their life and their limb. So for us, for this revival, my prayer and hopes in coming here and spending these four sessions with you is not that there will be a big mass of people flooding up to the altar, crying and praying for forgiveness. Although if you feel that way, you should do it. You should listen to that leading because it's probably the Holy Spirit, and we definitely welcome it. But more than that, because that's just the beginning. That Usually people will advertise that as the effects of a, of a revival. That's not the effects. That's the holy goosebumps. Those come and go. The effects of a revival is measured in how faithful are you six months later? Six years later? How is your community, how is Madison County transformed through Gordon's Chapel United Methodist Church. How is this church being light in this county? That's how you measure the effects of revival. And how hungry are you, the members of this church, to dig into scripture? Are you content with coming and singing a few songs and eating some really good food? That cake was amazing, by the way. Um, are you content with that? Is that what church is about? Or when you get together with other Christians, do you want to dig into scripture? Do you want to study God's word together? Do you want to learn about it and challenge each other and grow? Do you want to be transformed? That to me is successful revival. The other stuff's just good preaching and I'm not a good preacher. I'm a teacher. So that's my heart for you. That's my prayer for you. I so appreciate being able to spend uh, these few days with you. This is an amazing church. Uh, took me back to my roots. I mean, the Cokeberry hymnal is just hitting me right in the feels as they say. Uh, bringing back my childhood, covered dishes. You know, I go to a big city church. They don't do covered dishes, much to their shame. Um, so just all of this stuff has been really great to be a part of. And I do want to thank you. I hope that if nothing else, you just want to know more about scripture and you want to read it and study it more. That's my hope at the end of this.